Um, now we have our brother Kel to deliver his last study on the unique teachings of the truth, and we'll hand over to him. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> brother Ron, uh, someone suggested to me that that bell went off because Brother Ron was dealing with hard sayings. And I'm sure that that's not the case at all. Very lovely study. In the course of our week, we've endeavoured to lay a foundation between the, and try and grasp the difference between flesh and spirit that we might get to this final place, which is, I think, where God's endeavouring to bring us to, and that is the concept of God dwelling with us. It's a, it's a way of speaking that we don't use, perhaps we're not very comfortable with, often when we consider the subject, and we really want to address that today. We've tried to deal with big concepts. Now, I know most of you have been reading and studying your Bibles for, for decades, so these things that we're talking about really aren't new concepts. They're deep concepts. They are, they are really the foundations upon which our faith and our belief in God and the great principles that we're taught are founded. The great contest between the spirit and the flesh is the great contest of life. And we need to be of the spirit. And the spirit relates to everything that comes from above. We'll get to these three questions which we've raised at the opening and every one of our studies at the very end of this, of this talk. As I said, today we're dealing with this idea, God dwelling with and in us, God's purpose in creation fulfilled. We put this slide up at the start and we're going to put it up here for a couple of modifications. As I said before, the truth is quite simple. You don't need to be specially gifted to know and understand the truth, but you do need to have the courage and faith to make very tough decisions. Now, this is a very simple concept, and of course, we understand this at a very elementary level. Now, as I look around the audience, I can see here there's faces here that are above the average. Um, there's people here that are much smarter than I am. I'm probably just on average. But they've done a survey in society, and they've discovered that 70% of people think that they're above average. So if you're in that group, you're pretty safe, okay? But not only that, they've gone further than that. They've actually polled university professors. They're an interesting lot themselves. And in fact, 94% of university professors rate themselves smarter than their peers. That means other university professors. You know, those odds, of course, are impossible. And it just goes to show that knowledge does puff up. Okay? It does. And we really need to understand what we are, that we are flesh. And we're, most of us are just average people. And the truth is designed for average people. It's not designed for the great intellects of the world. It's designed for people who can humble themselves and hear from a God who is so superior, so far above us, that until we realise that difference, we can't hear him. We will try and interpret God into the mould, into the model, into the pattern that we want him to be in. And it's not the way it's to be, brothers and sisters. We need to hear God as he is. God does not select or choose people based upon their DNA, upon their good looks, upon their physical presence, their body. He's not interested in that. He's interested in the mind and the character. He can fix the body in an instant, but he can't create a mind in an instant. It takes a lifetime. We need to understand that, brothers and sisters. You know, there's a little parody. I don't know if you've seen this documentary from a number of years back, probably not for the current president, but in the presidential races in the previous, um, pre maybe two back, they had all the presidential candidates up on the stage. You know, they all looked like they came out of the same mould. They were all tall. They were all tanned. They were all successful. They were all wealthy. They all had silver hair. And they all spoke and they had this sort of plastic complexion. Now, maybe they did come out of the same Mattel factory. I don't know. But that's not the ideal leadership that God's calling for. He's not calling people like that. He doesn't care about the physical presence. He cares about what's in here. The most treasured 
and the most precious concept that, that we need to get our minds around. It talks in Isaiah 53 about the Lord being not someone who was pleasant to in appearance. And I think that what happens is that the word gets concealed by that. And we can be deceived by those models and we should look beyond it and understand what the truth is, is really about. The truth challenges men. And, and Brother Ron, of course, spoke about it this morning. The truth is full of hard sayings. Jesus was mostly misunderstood by his contemporaries because they tried to see him through the filter that was already built into their minds. Through their culture, their experience and their prejudices. When he came to his own, they could not always understand him. In fact, they often misunderstood him. And many things that he said challenged them. He came to his own, it says in John 1 verse 11, and his own received him not. He came to the Jews. They didn't understand him. Even his closest brethren didn't understand him. The, we won't look at this because we're sort of a bit challenged on time, but Jesus says in, it says in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He was a man of his times, he was a man who was affected by his education and the, and the pressure of his society. But this man at least had an inquiring heart, one who, who recognised that Jesus' works were different and his words were different. It was something that, that appealed to this man at a different level. He has this conversation with Jesus and Jesus introduces this idea of rebirth and you get this idea here how Jesus just challenges him. Are you a master? Are you the teacher of Israel? That's what that word, that Greek word, this, that word there means. Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these basic principles? Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 13, this chapter on parables. He says, of them, in them, of the people who are hearing, is the prophecy of Isaiah fulfilled. By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. You see, you can't come to God with the eyes of flesh and the ears of flesh. You can't interpret God according to your materialistic values. You can't use all this education that you get from the world and apply it to interpret the truth. If you do that, you'll never find it. You'll find a version, an image, a creation of the truth, but it's not God's creation. You know, there's people, unfortunately, even in our own fellowship who bring all this learning to the word and they're not listening to what it says. They're bending it to fit a mould, a preconceived mould, and they're pouring it into that. And you can do that with the word. It's an old trick. It's been around since the beginning. Jesus' sayings are often what appear to be purposely challenging. It's interesting how we're talking, bringing these ideas together. They're hard sayings. And sometimes they cause many to leave him. I won't need to go through this because fortunately they've already been dealt with. I mean, it's beautiful. Even his closest disciples found him hard to understand. Because it's so hard, brothers and sisters, to break the shackles of this form of thinking. Why were his words hard to understand? Jesus laid most of his criticism against the leaders of the Jews. These are the ones who sat in Moses' seat. These are the ones who claim to be the teachers of the people. And we do well to consider these issues. They are very important. Why couldn't they understand? There's two related I think there's two related reasons why they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. And he speaks about both of them. Reason number one, they'd adopted customs and traditions added, I should say, customs and traditions to the practice of the law. The law was very specific that they weren't to add to nor take away from the law, but to enhance their practice of the law, they added bits. And Jesus' words are very blunt here in Mark chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Howbeit, he says, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines... The commandments of men, they added to. And by adding to, even with the best intentions, even with the best intentions, 
you change what God is saying. Unless you yourself think you're of equal experience or knowledge or wisdom as God, you just should not touch the things of God. They are precious and they are holy. We're also warned about the same danger in Colossians chapter 2. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. That's the challenge, brothers and sisters, today. Take your source of education, your source of knowledge and wisdom from another source, bring it to this book, and you will change what it says. Even if your intentions are good, you will change it. Take it for what it says. Don't bend it into the mould. Reason number two. By adding to the law, they displayed a lack of trust and confidence in God. Jesus is very critical of them and declares that this form of thinking and their subsequent evil behaviour sprang from the twisting of the word of God. You can look these references up at your own will. Jesus said that as such they were children of the devil. Now that's pretty, pretty blunt words. Children of the devil. The serpent in the garden, which is what of course the context here in John chapter 8, who had also twisted the word of God to suit his own needs and worldview. This context in John chapter 8, it is beautiful. It's all about fatherhood. We, don't be, not, we be not born of fornication. We have one God, that's our, and, our, and he's our father. Abraham's our father. It's all about that, brothers and sisters. Now, Jesus says this, why don't you understand my speech? Even because you can't hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. The lusts of your father you will do. And he goes on to describe these characteristics. Have you ever wondered what he he means by this? I mean, I I struggled over this. That just dawned on me. The lusts of your father you will do. What are the lusts of the serpent? We don't often after we think about the lust of Eve and the lust of Adam, their eyes were open. You, know, you go back and look at it. The serpent considered his words were of equal or superior value to God's. That's what Genesis chapter 3 is about. His words, God said this, but I say, my words are more important. And that's what the Jews were doing by adding their traditions. They were saying, God said this, but we say our words are more important. That's not the heritage we've received, brothers and sisters. That isn't what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Let's hear what the word says in its intent, in all its power. Let's not mask its meaning. Let's not bend it, pour it into our own mould and think that we're doing God's will, we will be working against the truth. By adding to and to God's word, mankind makes God's word, makes man's word of equal or higher value than God's. And by taking away from God's word, we in in effect do the same thing. When we speak of the truth, therefore, we talked about this in the very first two classes, We're not referring to a relative concept in that philosophical sense we spoke of earlier, but rather to the fixed certainties that God has revealed to us in his word. And this is the constant challenge that is spoken about and that we're warned about throughout the scripture. It's the constant challenge. That's what the temptation of Jesus is about in in Matthew chapter 4. I've got verse 4 there. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word comes from God. That's what it's about, brothers and sisters. It's the only way you can overcome temptation. It's the only way you can deal with trials and difficulties. Forget about all these other things and all these other ideas, as smart as they sound. Here's the truth and here's the true sense, true source of spiritual welfare and spiritual healing. The difficulty is that wrong ideas are often presented by intelligent Gifted and rational people. And on the surface, the words sound plausible and reasonable. 
There's a challenge. Just like the serpent's words. As hard as that's to say. We acknowledge these things concerning faith, and I just want to look at faith for a moment, because this is, we introduced this very briefly in the last class. We say that faith is believing what God says and promises. That faith is based upon the knowledge of God. That Christ dwells in us by faith. That without faith it's impossible to please God. That faith comes from hearing the word of God. Now all those are excellent and sound principles, but they're only half the picture. There's more, as the Demtel man used to say. Faith also involves a way of thinking and perceiving and seeing. Now, this is the part that's hard, brothers and sisters. It involves more than simply believing promises. It, believes, it involves changing how you see. In other words, overriding our natural vision, our natural sight and senses, and seeing with a different form of sight. And it's the only way we can know see or perceive God. Now we talked in the last class about how great God is, that we need to be careful that we don't push God into this materialistic form that we can be comfortable with. We can't do that. Of course, that's what Jesus does when he comes. He made people, when he came, he made people uncomfortable because they were comfortable how they had slotted God into a particular formula or a mould or a way of seeing him. And Jesus revealed the true God in all his greatness and all his wisdom. He was God's presence, as it were, amongst the people. And they couldn't understand him. Using human logic, rational thought, and I mean that in the worst sense, from other sources apart from God is not able to give us this knowledge or perception. It's just not available. You can't find it in creation. You can't use human reasoning, perception. It's limited by the limitations of the flesh. By finite thinking in a cursed world via our senses alone. You cannot ascend using these techniques or methods. Faith gives us sight and this sight comes from God. From hearing the message, understanding the message, believing the message... And knowing the one who's given that message. It's not of the flesh, but it's of the spirit. Flesh means everything that relates to this creation, this physical creation that comes from below. And the spirit, in contrast to the scripture, inevitably relates to everything that comes from above. That's the contrast that we need to get our minds around it. Our faith should be like Moses. And we introduced this reference previously. If God says to Moses, there shall no man see me and live, yet we're told of Moses, by faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now it's using that sensory language as if Moses could see God in front of him. And you find when you see that and you discover this principle It's everywhere in the scripture. This is what marked out the faithful from the unfaithful, from the foolish, from the wise. It's this challenge, brothers and sisters, being able to raise our minds up and see with these sorts of eyes. In like manner also, after all Job's troubles and the foolish and philosophical reasoning advanced by his friends who came to comfort him, terrible words really, which are called by God darkened counsel, They pulled Job down, didn't lift him up. God spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. And he reveals his wisdom and his power and his purpose to Job. You know what Job says at the end of that? That's beautiful. Job saw nothing. He says, I have heard of thee with the hearing of my ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. You think of that, that's beautiful, isn't it? Here's a man, through all this trouble and turmoil in life, now he sees God. He saw nothing material. He saw no physical likeness. Now he had an understanding of God that he'd never perceived before. 
He's obviously speaking metaphorically, not literally or physically. He only heard God. But now he perceived. And this is, of course, the essence of what our senses are about. We don't actually see with our eyes or hear with our ears. It all happens inside your head. It happens in here. You know, I've probably got about a minute, so I'll just spend a minute on this. They've got people who are born blind nowadays, and they're setting cameras up. They're putting electrodes under their tongue. And as the camera picks up movement and light and sense, these people are developing a sense of sight. They they can't see with their eyes because they can respond to the electrical signals going via their tongue into their brain and it's affecting and they're able to see shadows and movement that's just not part of their natural being. You see, it all happens in here, brothers and sisters. We are marvellously made because we are unique. We're not descended from um, apes, and creatures, we're not evolved. We are a special creation. God has made us this way because He's made us in His image and likeness. New Testament, you get these same ideas over and over again. He says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. It's a beautiful concept, this one. We read constantly of this other type of sight. One not dependent upon the physical, carnal senses, but one based upon faith and understanding. This reference we looked at the other day. If you had known me, you should have known the Father also. And henceforth you have known him and you see him. Not talking about physical shape, but what he was, who he was. And as some brethren reminded me yesterday, you know, Jesus was eternal life. That's what 1 John chapter 1 is about. The life was manifested and we've beheld it. Even eternal life, which was with the Father and manifested unto us. Even in the days of his flesh, this man manifested the character of God. And if you walk contrary to the way of God, it says here in first 3, is it 3 John? It might be 1 John. Oh, this one will do anyway. You can look it up. He says that anyone who follows the way of evil is not of God. He that doeth evil hath not seen God. You see, that's what sin is. If you see God for who he is, and you see the totality of him through the eye of faith, why would you sin? Why would you go off on a tangent? Why would you follow that way? We all stumble, brothers and sisters, because we lose sight of who God is. That's what it's about. And when you lose sight of who God is and the greatness of his presence, the greatness of his wisdom, you can go astray. The purpose, of course, of faith is that we might refocus upon the things that come from God. This... Same sense of sight is found in all God's people. It's just not something that Jesus had or Moses had or Job had. It's something that all his people have. So Hebrews 11, verse 13, reference we know very well. These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They weren't using these eyes. They were using this eye in here, the one that, the sight that God gives. And they were persuaded of it and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers in the earth. So we must see with the eye of faith, not with the eye of flesh. Now, when you look at the concept of eyes, you find it just popping out of the scripture. For instance, Eve, what was it deceived her? She was deceived when she only saw by the eye of flesh and not with the eye of faith. Notice how it's used, the emphasis in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. And the, when the woman saw, now she wasn't using the eye of faith, she was using the eye of flesh. It was, to, it was that it was pleasant to the eyes. That's what temptation is. It appeals to your base senses. And you need to step back from it. You need to apply the eyes of faith. You need to see things through God's eyes. And when they had eaten, it says, the eyes of them both were opened. 
And since that day to this, this has been the problem of humanity. We are sensory creatures. We need to lift ourselves up above this instinctive automatic response system and to allow God to work in us, to bring us to this the situation where he wants to work in us. And we'll talk about that as we go through this. The idea of seeing and not seeing, spiritual blindness, it's a common ailment. It occurs when we adopt foreign ideas and concepts and teachings and doctrines that are not from God, irrespective of whether they claim to be of God. It involves having healthy functional senses, yet these are dulled, in fact, suborned and used in a different way. Paul talks about not letting our members be servants of iniquity. That's what he's talking about. The outcome is, if this happens, is that we, like Eve, can no longer hear God speaking or give God's word the respect and the preeminence that it deserves. That it deserves. Faith only springs from understanding and believing God. You can look at these references here. I'm sure you're familiar with all of them. They had eyes and they couldn't see. They saw, but they couldn't perceive. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 9. He that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off. Very powerful lessons. Here's the key to understanding our perception of God. Mortal, finite man cannot physically behold the infinite God. It's just a truth. We cannot, in our physical forms, perceive God or see God with our senses because they are limited by this existence. Many of the recorded circumstances of men coming into even angels in their full of power and glory impresses us with the awe and fear they inspired. You know this reference in Matthew 28, when the angel of heaven descended and rolled back the stone of the door where Jesus was in the tomb and sat upon it. His countenance was lightning and his raiment was white as snow and for fear of him, the the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Now these would have been hardened, tough men. And they're in the presence of an angel. And they're like, they're dead. They're just terrified. How much more, brothers and sisters? How much more the creator of heaven and earth himself? Yet it says that it's by faith that we can both Know and see God, even today. Let's not put these things off for the future. It's about today, brothers and sisters. That's what transformation's about. Don't think that we're going to come to the judgment seat and God's going to somehow zip into us a new mind. It doesn't work like that. The mind has to be created today. All those things that you may think you can put off to the day of Christ's coming and he will fix them up for you, deal with them today. Do as much as you can to get your house in order. Get your mind aright. God can change the body and will change the body in an instant. This mind needs to be dealt with today. Yes, there's things in your life that you will not be able to completely fix, but that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of dealing with those issues that we can deal with. And I can't remember whether it's Joseph, it's, it's, um, which of the kings it is, whether it's Jehoshaphat or Asa, it's one of, those ting, thing, one of those kings where it talks about him doing all that he could, educating, he strengthened the cities, he strengthened the people, he had the word of God, I think it's Jehoshaphat, he had the people taught, 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 strengthened, 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 and he won wars and victories, then suddenly a million men turn up on his boundary. I think they were from Ethiopia. A great army comes up like locusts. You know, it's beautiful. You think of the concept here. Basically, he turns around to God and says, well, I've done everything I can. Can you help us? God just takes the army away. You see, that's how God works. 
You can't sit in your bed on your chair and say, God, well, make me a cup of coffee. God, do this for me because I can't be bothered. It doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. God wants you to be active. He will work with you. He'll be patient. He'll develop these things. He'll give you the opportunity, but he won't do this for you, brothers and sisters. You have to work with him. Or as it says in the scripture, walk with him. And when these impossible situations come, he will provide a deliverance. Of that we are assured. So let's get on to the subject. That was the introduction. (laughs) Jesus made a promise in John 14. I want you to think about this in you may, because like, I don't mind challenging you, and of course it will keep you awake if I speak about something controversial. There's a discussion right in the midst of a section on the very last night in which Jesus was betrayed, and Jesus is downpouring his heart to his disciples. And he's trying to give them this last bit of strength because they were going to face a challenge to their faith such as never was. And when they came through this, they would be... They would be so empowered, as we've been told in previous sessions from here, that they would go forth fearlessly. Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him. Now notice this. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. These are very powerful words and very important words. The context and reference is both important and very informative. We sometimes misunderstand these words. I misunderstood them for a long time. I thought that it was applying to the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit gifts and the coming of the comforter, the paracletos. But it's not, brothers and sisters. It's in a context that's surrounded by those sorts of ideas, but it's not talking about that. To do that is to miss the promise that Jesus is making and the very important principle that it's based upon and thereby diminish how God and Christ dwells in and works with people, even today. Let's investigate this. It's based upon a very deep principle in the scripture. In the law, God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. God promises to walk amongst Israel. Deuteronomy 29. I will dwell among the children of Israel. His promise to them was that he would be there in their presence. And all the symbols of the tabernacle were all about this, God dwelling in their midst. Now this reference here in Isaiah 57 is wonderful. Because so often you find the prophets giving a commentary upon the principle and the purpose that's established in the law. Look what Isaiah says here in 57 verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, the one we considered yesterday, the one we've talked about today, who is so high above us that we can barely perceive of him. He says his name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also. That is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Here's this great creator, of, a sustainer of everything, dwelling with people. That's what he's saying. This is, brothers and sisters, what this is about. This is what the tabernacle is about. The parable or principle of the law in the tabernacle and temple is here alluded to and God's purpose in these principles revealed. God dwells with his people, notice this, in a very personal way. We sometimes globalise it or corporatise this and think that it only relates to the ecclesia and us as the corporate body and all that. That's absolutely true that it does. It has to work on a personal basis. The truth is very personal and so also is your relationship with God. 
God dwells and works in us by what means? By his spirit. We shouldn't be confronted or afraid to use these scriptural ideas irrespective of how they've been misused and abused by many who call themselves Christians. But we should, we must understand what they mean and how and in what way they are applicable today. We spoke about that yesterday. These references we've looked at a number of times. I won't go to them all. You, know, you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. Your body... And personally, is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you. It doesn't only apply to the first century, brothers and sisters. This applies to us as well. And it must apply. This principle is very deep and it's very powerful. We should not be confronted or afraid of it. This is how it works. God's at work. Remember Genesis chapter 1? God wants to make us in his image and likeness. His work is continuing. God is continuing to work in people, reshaping their thinking, their mind, their way of life, so that it reflects God's way and is manifested in their works and their words. As if they be God to people. As Moses was to be a god to Pharaoh, those concepts are all through the scripture. This principle of way or way of speaking is throughout the word in many different ways. Look at this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. I love this verse. He says, you've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. There's God making us like him. In the image of God. That's what this is saying. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 to 25. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man. Which after God. That means after God's likeness. Created like God's as other, as God. As other versions show. In righteousness and true holiness. It's not simply grabbing. This is the challenge. It isn't simply grabbing what we naturally are and educating the flesh, brain, body, and making a better man. It's not that, brothers and sisters, at all. That's Grecian philosophy. That's what they did. They spent their life educating the mind, exercising the body to perfect human beings. It's not like that at all. This is a very painful process because it involves death. Destroying the old man that God might make anew according to his original purpose. You know Ephesians chapter 2, I'm sure about this, created in Christ Jesus. It's, it's everywhere. This, this idea of God continuing his creative work is spoken of throughout the Bible in many different ways. If you went to the Old Testament, you'd find it embedded in the symbols of the law, the clothing wasn't about covering, it's about manifestation. It's the symbolic meaning of the cherubim. Substances like silver and gold, the articles of worship, the clothing of the priests, how the people were wear to wear certain garments, how they were to have the, the ring of blue around the bottom of their garment. Same idea. The articles and the layout and the order of service in both the temple and tabernacle and temple. Each of these usages is connected to the central theme of God declared when he set his hand to create in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. Once you are aware of this, you will see it everywhere. And I'm sure you're already aware. I'm only talking to the converted here, I'm sure. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision. It's not about the flesh, but a new creature. Very powerful concepts, brothers and sisters. Very powerful concepts. Don't underestimate the power of God's word. And I, and I hear people, particularly those who... A decade or so ago, who had gone off to the evangelicals saying, Oh, you, you know, you're only talking about the word... The word of God is powerful. God said, 
Let there be light. There was light. God said, and suddenly it happened. God's word is hugely powerful. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. He spake and it was done. Don't underestimate the power of the word. In other words, keep reading and more particularly keep thinking about its essential message because therein is the power of God. You come to the scriptures, hear what the spirit says. We're not talking about sitting in a dark room waiting for God to speak to you or standing in a forest naked holding a tree. They're all stupid concepts, brothers and sisters. God has spoken. Hear what he says. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, says Jesus. Revelation, you just find it in all the letters. The words of Christ to the seven ecclesias. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the ecclesias. These types of phrases are summarised like this. They're everywhere. They clearly inform us that the word we have received is the word of the spirit. The context and intent of each of these demands a response. It's not simply a matter of hearing. Yes, I, I know that. And this is the, it's sort of another concept here, brothers and sisters. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that doing Bible study is going on the internet or using an electronic Bible, punching in a few words, getting somebody's commentary and saying, well, now I understand. It's not that. Information will avail you nothing if you don't get to the heart of the matter. And if it doesn't have an impact on you, God demands of you a response. This is the creator of heaven and earth. You know, we people aren't used to service. We aren't used to saying, yes, sir, no, sir. We've grown up in an egalitarian society where everybody's sort of equal. God demands a response and he is, he deserves a response. He's given all. In other words, don't only hear, but understand and hearken and respond to his call. This is the spirit of God at work. and God will work in us. It's not a natural process. It's a supernatural process. And what that means, it's of God. It's a supernatural process. It's not simply that I'm smarter than you or you're smarter than I am or whatever it might be. I'm better looking than you, which is, of course, mostly true. Of course, that's not true, brothers and sisters. Makes no difference to God. God can fix that in an instant. Will we allow God to work in us, to dwell in us, to change us? Or will we hold back? I put this little diagram up there. This is the camp of Israel. This is the concept here. Here's the idea that God might dwell amongst his people. Here's the concept of we are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in us. Will we be this camp? Will we manifest this spirit? That's a challenge, brothers and sisters. You know, I might even finish on time today. Thank you. Much appreciated. There's a test these Jesus gives. Are Jesus' words true for us? This is a beautiful context. I love it. They said to him, they said, how does this man know? How does he know what he's talking about? He's never learned. He hasn't been to college. He hasn't got a degree. He hasn't got a PhD. He's not a doctor. He hasn't sat at the feet of the teachers. Jesus answered this. You see, it was a challenge, not just for Jesus, but it was to all the people. They weren't addressing Jesus. They were addressing the people, telling them, don't listen to him. He isn't qualified. What Jesus says is just beautiful. He says, you're not talking to the people who are questioning him. He says, if any man, you can just see him turning. If any man will do God's will, he will know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Isn't that beautiful? You know, this is the thing about the truth. It's self-confirmatory. I think that might be a word unless I made it up. That's all right. You can know what I mean. What is his will and how shall we know it? It's so simple, brothers and sisters. If we follow Christ's example, if you deny yourself, if you take up your cross daily, if you crucify the flesh, that we follow Christ's example by living by the word of God, reflecting in our lives God's character, walking in the spirit. It's not all about death. It's about manifestation of the truth of the spirit of God, of God's character and his ways. Then we will know the absolute truth of Christ's and God's testimony.
That's what he's saying. You will know by first-hand experience. Our faith gives the word of God and gives God himself effectual power to change us into the image of our Father who is making us to be like him. This is a work of God, brothers and sisters. This is God and Christ dwelling in us. The truth must be lived. If you wish to save your house, help your children, help your ecclesia, then get your own thinking clear and honestly practice these principles we've discussed. Manifest them in your everyday life. Don't just understand them theoretically, practice them. I'm sure that I'm not alone in fearing that for the challenges and trends that are facing this generation. Divine education can't be outsourced. You can't simply send your children off to a Christadelphian school or a Sunday school and get someone else to take responsibility. You can't outsource it. Your children inherit from you the peculiarities of you, of your family, of your heritage, your wife and yourself, your family. They inherit that. And if you can't deal with your problems, brothers and sisters, how will you pass on to your children the knowledge to deal with the ones that they're going to get from you? If you've got a short temper and you can't control it, how are your children going to learn how to deal with it? If you've got other issues in your life and you haven't dealt with them, how are they going to learn the skills? Because they're going to look to you whether you'd like it or not. That's what God manifestation is about. When you do that, you heal your house and you heal your ecclesia. And there's no limitations upon what God can do. By 1 John chapter 5, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. In other words, we don't grudgingly do the things of God. We embrace them because we love the truth. I am running out of time. Sorry. (laughs) All right. Overview of the unique teachings of the truth. God's purpose was plainly declared in the beginning and spoken of in symbol and plain words throughout the scriptures. To attain that purpose, God has revealed things concerning himself and his way for us to understand and believe. These core teachings and beliefs are transformational in themselves. And to manifest them is to show faith in God. This pleases God. And it's by allowing God's testimony, the testimony of God's spirit, to fill us and direct us that enables God to work in us. If we remain true to this calling, God will complete his purpose in us and at the appointed time we shall share in his divine nature in a reformed and perfected world. There is God's promise. Is there? There's nothing comparable to that, brothers and sisters. Peter says that the path to full and fruitful life is by spiritual growth. It's not static. This beautiful place in first, Second Peter chapter 1, add to your faith. And he uses all these adding words, add virtue which means moral excellence, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness. Faith is not static, brothers and sisters. It is dynamic. Summary of this study. God is and always has been seeking to dwell in people. Today this is is to be a reality and it's powered by our understanding and our faith. We are called upon to thereby walk with God, just as Enoch and Noah did in their day. In the future, when when Christ's work is complete, we will be one with God in both mind and body, thus completing God's original purpose. In Revelation, you have this vision of the tabernacle of God is with men. The question mark is whether we will be part of it. Think of the singularity of Paul's work, and it's just beautiful. He picked up in Colossians chapter 1, to whom... God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's the work of Paul. That's what he's trying to create in the disciples, those who heard him. He's trying to create an image of Christ because in Christ is the image of God. Have faith in God. 
Now, I know all about mustard seed because Diana spilled them all over the floor of our kitchen. I didn't even know what they looked like. So I put a picture up here. This is the most potent power in the universe. Think about this. He says that this force, this force and power of faith is able to uproot a tree. Whoops. Got rid of the mountain altogether. And remove mountains. That's more powerful than a nuclear explosion. That's what he's telling you. And it's available to you and I if we will embrace it. <coughs> Seeing they can't kick me off, I'll keep going for another couple of secs. <laughs> These are the three questions. What is the truth? The essence of the truth is found in our five core beliefs, which we spoke about earlier, which we take wholly from the revelation of God in the whole scriptures, in the holy scriptures. We believe that many who claim to be Christian have corrupted these core ideas and therefore built incorrect structures. Does it matter what we believe? Yes, it does. It's critical. It will affect, not only is it dishonouring to God, it will affect the sort of person we become. Make no bones about it. If it's not of God, it will create a different creature different type of life we will live we'll make presumptions about god we'll misunderstand him god works in the lives of those who believe his truth and it is by the word of truth we saw that in second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 that he transforms us into the image of his son how should the truth affect us and this is the bit brothers and sisters it must transform us by its renewing influence. It is a dynamic concept that we might know what is the will and the way of God by first-hand experience. We call this concept God manifestation. Okay, That's our invented term, Brother Thomas's invented term, to label this concept. But it is all through the scriptures. It's God's character revealed in and through us. Today it should be seen in our thinking and behaviour. And here's the promise. In the future, God will make this a physical reality in us. The choices and the challenges, brothers and sisters, will we allow God to work in us?